WHMP. This is Bill Newman, WHMP. Welcome to the show. Yesterday, on the front page of all the regional newspapers, including the Daily Hampshire Gazette, was a story about freedom of the press. And it is a report on a decision by a Hamden County judge sitting on a Berkshire County case on a matter that affects all of us throughout the region, throughout the state, throughout the country. Here with us to discuss that case, that decision, and the stakes for freedom of the press is Larry Parnas, who is the managing editor for innovation at the Berkshire Eagle. He was the editor of the Daily Hampshire Gazette from 2009 to 2016. And Jeffrey Pyle, who is an attorney, a First Amendment expert, and the lawyer for Larry Parnas and the Berkshire Eagle in this case. By way of disclosure, uh, Larry Parnas was my editor for my column at the Daily Hampshire Gazette for those many years, and Jeffrey Pyle and I go back decades. He was my client in the case against the South Hadley School Committee involving, well, T-shirts. No, actually involving the First Amendment freedom of speech the Massachusetts Constitution and the Massachusetts Freedom of Ex- Student Freedom of Expression Act. Welcome to you both, Larry Parnas, Jeffrey Pyle. Larry, for those of our listeners who say, what in God's name is Newman talking about? What is this case? Tell us. Well, uh, isn't it true that all legal disputes grow out of life experience and practices? So uh, this, the origins of this legal fight began when I reported in 2019 that the Diocese of Western Massachusetts, uh, based in Springfield, Roman Catholic Diocese, um, was disavowing a claim from a former altar boy that he had been raped by a group of priests, including the longtime former bishop, Christopher Weldon. So that was 2019. And one of our stories at the Eagle reported uh, that the diocese had uh, found in, on its review board that the man's claims were uh, were believable. When we reported that and noted that the bishop was not on the list of, of uh, credibly accused clergy, the church denied that. And in subsequent reporting, we had witnesses to the man's appearance before the review board confirming that he had spoken of his abuse by the uh, by the former bishop. So that led the current bishop at the time, Mitchell Rosansky, to ask a outside uh, legal expert, Judge uh, Peter Vellis, to look at the whole matter. So that was the first step of it. There's coverage in the Berkshire Eagle, and it prompts the diocese to commission an outside review. Okay, let's stop there for one second. Had you, as the Managing editor for Inno- managing editor for innovation. That's your title at the Eagle. But you, what you do is you run investigations. You're the investigative uh, uh, person uh, editor for the Eagles. Is that a fair description for purposes of letting our listeners know how you became involved in reporting this story about the archdiocese? That's right, Bill. I um, I was my title at the time was investigations editor, and I was. Uh, I ran a small investigations group at the Eagle. That's kind of a rare thing for community newspapers these days, but that's what that's how we roll. And I recently, uh, just this past spring, became uh, more of a in, a in a more of a managerial role. Okay, so you're running an investigation. Is this an investigation about the archdiocese and sexual abuse in general, or something more specific where you started? We, we had been, um, for a couple of years before this coverage came out in 2019, we had been reporting on the story that just wouldn't go away uh, about clergy sexual abuse in the Roman Catholic Church. And uh, the, the case of this altar boy uh, who, was, who, who came forward to say that he had been raped by Bishop Weldon and two other priests in the 1960s when he was ages 9 to 11, that was one of several, I'd say, half a dozen stories we had done uh, on on people who were claiming clergy abuse. Okay. Now, when you're dis- 
discussing this matter, when you're doing the investigation, when the Eagle is doing the investigation. By the way, did you uh, do the reporting yourself? Did you do the investigation yourself, or were there others working for you on this project involving the investigation of the sexual abuse by uh, individual bishops and priests at the Roman Catholic Diocese here in Western Massachusetts? Was that you, or was there others working for and with you? That was just me with uh, editing support, you know. Okay, so you write a story for the Berkshire Eagle about <coughs> Bishop Christopher Weldon. Is that correct? That is his name. Yeah, he, uh, the the late Bishop Weldon. Okay, and uh, the late Bishop Weldon. What do you say, and how does this become review for us? How this becomes a dispute that's going to involve lawyers and courts and fundamental First Amendment values. <clears throat> well, at the time I was reporting this in the spring of 2019, um, I based my coverage on having obtained a copy of a letter that the review board sent to the survivor and on communications with the diocese, questions with the diocese about this. They, um, after an initial story in May of 2019, they uh, basically said, hold, hold the phone. Uh, this isn't right. We've never heard that the bishop had been engaged in uh, sexual abuse. And we, of course, this is, uh, of course, we have to examine that and look at that. And in the course of doing that, I, I interviewed uh, three people who had attended the review board meeting that was the first full audience for this survivor. And they all told me on the record that they heard him say that he was abused, sexually abused by Bishop Weldon. So, so you write a, I'm sorry, so you write a story uh, reporting this, saying that yes, the archdiocese knew about this. Yes, there are witnesses to the report. Uh, the archdiocese says, no, there wasn't. What happens next? There, that is, there wasn't a report. What well, happens we, next? We had a story. Uh, I mean, the, uh, forgive me for thinking in terms of stories as milestones. That's, you know, that's where we have come to our, our, our we've done our reporting, our fact checking, and then we weigh in. So we had a story in June 2019 that said, witnesses to the review board session with this particular clergy abuse survivor say that there's a cover-up and that's bill that's what apparently prompted uh, former bishop uh, rosansky who is now the uh, runs the arch he's the archbishop in spring in st louis um, he asked uh, a judge a retired judge hampton superior court judge to to review the entire matter so that was the sort of the major moments for this case in 2019, it's the coverage, it's the uh, the former Bishop Brzezinski's decision to get to the bottom of the whole question. Given that there was this dissonance between what audit, what witnesses to the review board said, and what the review board <clears throat> had to say about this. Okay, so this and is a big story. This is a story of the Roman Catholic Diocese in Springfield covering up reports of sexual abuse involving the former bishop, now the late bishop, uh, Weldon, of the archdiocese. That's the guts of this story. Is that right? That's right. Yep. Yep. I mean, that's how I, that's how I see it. That may not be how the diocese sees it. Okay. So the diocese then, this now that this story has become a story in the Berkshire Eagle and regionally and across the state as well because of your investigation and your investigative reporting, the archdiocese hires former Superior Court Judge uh, Vilas to do its own independent, or for him to do an, an investigation of the story that you've reported. Is that right? Yes, that's right. Bill. And what happens next? A year goes by. Uh, Vilas worked with a, an investigator, and from basically uh, early summer of 2019 to June of 2020, uh, two months into the three months into the pandemic. Um, at that point, Vilas released his report, I mean, hundreds of pages, and 
found that the survivor's account was unequivocally credible. That led Rosansky to apologize uh, for what this man had experienced and to ramp up efforts within the diocese to be more responsive to people who bring such complaints. Did the diocese say anything about the cover-up? Did Peter Vilas, did the judge say anything about the cover-up? Well, the Vilas report is was not good news for the diocese in many ways, not only in this finding. Um, Vila, uh, judge Vilas was able to obtain internal emailing within the diocese that was provided as part of his investigation or in support of his investigation. And that included correspondence between the public relations people for the diocese and uh, Jack Egan, the diocese, diocese's longtime attorney. So it had attorney-client correspondence in there. Uh, but what that correspondence shows uh, I think it's fair to say, is an effort to manipulate the message and to throw a journalist off the scent and to further complicate matters. So here's what I don't understand. If Judge Vilas finds that, in fact, there was a cover-up and that, in fact, the statements by the uh, sexual abuse survivor regarding uh, Bishop former bishop and the late Bishop uh, Weldon were accurate. And this is what you reported. Uh, well, I guess the archdiocese still has needs or believes it has needs for something that you reported. Tell us about that. Because it seems to me that what you reported and what Judge Vilas hired as an investigator for the archdiocese found were uh, consistent with each other. Yeah. Well, enter a civil lawsuit. Okay. Enter uh, the civil lawsuit. What happens? So uh, the Vilas report comes out in uh, the early months of the pandemic, June 2020. And in January 2021, uh, the following winter, um, the survivor sues the diocese uh, with a many multiple count civil lawsuit, half of which pertain to the his experiences as an altar boy, and roughly half to what he claims was a effort by the diocese to, to, to not reckon with his situation, his personal experience. And he dates that from 2014 uh, through the, to the filing of the lawsuit. And it's, I think it's just important to note, finally, quick uh, note here, Bill, is that he, he claims that he recovered his memory of the childhood abuse after watching televised events connected with the installation of Pope Francis and had and had a moment where it all flooded back to him. Okay. And that and shortly after that that he began to report his experience to the diocese. I think it was 2014. Okay, so there's and this so lawsuit co going on, and at some point, the archdiocese says, we want to see Larry Parnas's notes. We want to know what this investigative <clears throat> reporter found. And yep. as I understand it, this is a uh, major problem because you had promised the source anonymity. Is that right? That's right. That's right. And uh, and just to finish the timeline here, Bill, January 2021, they filed a lawsuit. And in March of this year, so 14 months later, the Eagle receives a subpoena uh, asking uh, me to provide uh, a long list of materials that I might have gathered and also to sit for depositions. And that's when uh, that's when uh, Jeff Pyle uh, joins the joins the, the the scene, enters the scene, and uh, and Jeff can can fill you in on how we evaluated and responded as a news organization to the subpoena, which would have required us to uh, identify a confidential source. 
the revelation of a confidential source, confidential sources being a crucial piece of reporting of freedom of the press. That matter is in front of the Superior Court here in Western Massachusetts. We're going to find out what happened and what is at stake when we speak with Attorney Jeffrey Pyle and continue our conversation with Larry Parnas of the Berkshire Eagle, former former editor of the Daily Hampshire Gazette. We'll be right back. This is Bill Newman, WHMP. Hey everyone, Gordon Oliver here. I am privileged, along with my co-pilot Tina Marie, to gather and share a community of people, organizations, and experts who are making a difference in improving and positively impacting the financial lives of others. Financial peace of mind is a marathon, not a sprint, so we're cutting through the clutter to help you attain or continue to attain financial freedom. Wondering about members-only buying services? Tune in on Saturday at 9.30 a.m. here on WHMP and learn about buyersedgeinc.com. 586-1000. Good phone number, right? It's the number Whalen Insurance got when we opened in 1961. It's still our number more than 60 years later. If you need an insurance quote or have a claim, just call 586-1000. We answer the phone, ready to help. That's our pledge to you. Until now. Now when you call, we'll answer. And if it's something clerical or routine, like an address change, we're going to transfer you to the Arbella Insurance Call Center in Quincy. You'll be connected with a real person there, too. You won't be entering your policy number on the dial pad. The Arbella Call Center. I told myself Whalen Insurance would never do this, but insurance agent friends all over New England tell me it actually works really well. So we're going to try it. And if it doesn't work well, I'm sure you'll let us know by calling 586-1000. Whalen Insurance. Local people, local service, local insurance. In partnership with Arbella Insurance. Buy a mattress online? There are at least a hundred websites that'll ship you a mattress rolled up like a burrito and stuffed in a box. Wait a minute. You and your mattress will spend seven or eight intimate hours together every night for years. Don't you need more than pixels to know what it actually feels like? Maybe you could just lay on the screen and... Hi, it's Robin from Talon Furniture. We mostly sell therapeutic mattresses at Talon. Not Tempur-Pedic, not trying to mislead you. Come to Talon Furniture and lay down on a Therapeutic. I'll leave you alone. You can see how you are together. Therapeutic mattresses are clean. No toxic off-gassing. I've been to the factory in Brockton. Yes, they're made by fellow Red Sox fans. You like eating local? Try sleeping local. Talon delivers and sets it up. We don't just drop a big burrito on your doorstep. You won't have to wrestle it through the kitchen or up the stairs. Talon Furniture, a real store just down the hill from Amherst College. It happens all over Massachusetts. In every home and every community. Be careful in your bike. Learning can happen anytime, anywhere. Hi guys. We'll see you at practice this weekend. And no matter how learning takes place in your family's life, Desi is there as your partner. The Massachusetts Department of Elementary and Secondary Education. Never stop learning. Find out more at mass.gov slash back to school. Sponsored by the Massachusetts Department for Elementary and Secondary Education. This is Bill Newman, WHMP. We continue our conversation with Larry Parnas of the Berkshire Eagle, former editor of the Daily Hampshire Gazette, and Jeffrey Pyle, Boston-based, but from South Hadley, Massachusetts, attorney, one of the country's leading experts in First Amendment freedom of the freedom of speech and freedom of the press issues, Jeff Pyle, we've been talking with your client Larry Parnas uh, as the representative and the investigative reporter and editor for the Berkshire Eagle, who promised a source, a victim of sexual abuse uh, from the Roman Catholic diocese in Springfield. He promised that source anonymity, and he wrote a story. And in response, as part of the lawsuit that. The, an individual brought against the diocese. The diocese says, we want Larry Parnas's notes, we want his information, we want to know who he's talked to, and we're entitled to it. And you said, wait just a second. That's wrong as a matter of law, as a matter of First Amendment law, as a matter of the precious freedom of the press that is so vital to us. The judge in that case made a decision this week. Bring us up to date, please. 
Well, I want to be clear. Larry, uh, first of all, Larry's, import, Larry's reporting has been extremely important. He has uh, broken open a story uh, suggesting that the Roman Catholic Archdiocese in Springfield uh, had found that a bishop had been credibly accused of sexual abuse, but then did not include that bishop's name uh, on a list of credibly accused uh, <coughs> clergy people. Um, Larry, uh, in his reporting on this very important uh, story, received information from more than one confidential source, and we have not um, revealed who that confidential source is, and that's really the whole point. The um, the lawsuit that was filed was filed by the survivor of the uh, of the alleged abuse, uh, going under a pseudonym, John Doe, and that survivor alleged that. First of all, some of his counsel, as Larry said, relate to the abuse itself, and other counts say that the uh, the diocese botched the response to Larry's inquiries concerning the discrepancy between the list of credibly accused uh, clergy people and um, and the, the the admission to the survivor that Bishop Weldon was his abuser. Um, that and that those claims include defamation and infliction of emotional distress and the like. The diocese is the defendant in that case. And as a defendant in the case, you have the power to subpoena people who might have information that would help you mount your defense. The, the subpoena that was issued here to Larry asked him for literally every single document that he used in reporting on this story, asked him for all of his notes, asked him for every single scrap of paper and, and then noticed his deposition so that he could be questioned in detail about the reporting process for getting this story. Larry would never have received this information had he not been able to promise his sources confidentiality. Larry has said that in an affidavit and I have no doubt of the veracity of that. Reporters all the time promise sources that they will not reveal their identities, and we get important information as members of the public through that process. Just this week, a bombshell story broke in Georgia where Herschel Walker is now alleged to have paid for an abortion by a woman he impregnated in 2009. That has upended that Senate race in Georgia. The Daily Beast got that information from a confidential source. Uh, we, we, we almost don't even think about it uh, as members of the public that the information we receive often comes from sources and reporters' abilities to actually promise their sources confidentiality and have those promises be meaningful is crucially important to the reporting process. This subpoena comes in and we file a motion to quash that subpoena with the judge saying that under Massachusetts law, we can show that this subpoena will threaten the free flow of information and that the need of the diocese to get into Larry's notes and sources and all the like is it doesn't overcome the threat to the First Amendment that this subpoena would, um, would cause. And in the judge's initial order, she agreed that this subpoena was, quote, a classic fishing expedition by the archdiocese, uh, by the diocese rather. And she narrowed the subpoena to a very small category of information sought in that subpoena. But even the narrowed subpoena, we argued, um, and Larry's affidavit, uh, supplemental affidavit confirmed, would have still required Larry to effectively identify one or more of his confidential sources to the archdiocese. And so um, we had further litigation about that. And the judge just this week reconsidered her order and exempted confidential sources from anything that Larry has to produce in this case. So for that, we are, uh, we are very grateful. But the issue points up the, the general um, difficulty of this issue in Massachusetts. There are 40 states, including the district, and, and 39 states in the District of Columbia have shield laws that protect journalists in the and, and their ability to protect confidential sources. And but in Massachusetts, in Massachusetts, we don't have a press shield law. Is that right? We, have, we are one of the 10 states that does not have a press shield law. Uh, and that is a problem. I have actually testified at the legislature in support of a shield law, but we never seem to get anywhere with the legislature in enacting one. And that is too bad because shield laws allow journalists to feel confident in, in telling their sources I can promise you anonymity. And it gives sources the confidence that 
their, the promises they hear from reporters will be honored by the legal system even if a lawsuit gets filed and there's trouble on down the road. There had been a bill in 2013 to enact a shield law protection in Massachusetts that would have made it impossible to uncover confidential sources unless the inquiry was related to national in an imminent threat to national security. Uh, that, that I testified in favor of that bill. It would have also put up a pretty difficult balancing test even for non-confidential information and notes. Because think about it, reporters cover lots of interesting, important things all the time that lead to lawsuits. Whether you're talking about the Trump taxes or, or anything else, what reporters talk about often leads to civil litigation or is involved in civil litigation. Why should a private party in a civil case get to rifle through the notes of a reporter. If we believe in freedom of the press, we should believe that reporters should have the ability to conduct their investigations without intrusion by civil litigants who would like to you know, profit from the, uh, the sweat of the, the, the journalist's brow. We are speaking with Attorney Jeffrey Pyle, who is a partner at Prince LaBelle, now Prince LaBelle Tie in Boston, First Amendment and freedom of the press, freedom of speech expert, and Larry Parnas, from the Berkshire Eagle, former editor of the Daily Hampshire Gazette. We're going to take a quick break. We're going to come back. We're going to spend a few more minutes finding out what happens next and what is the future of press freedom here in Massachusetts, being one of 10 states without a press shield law. We'll be right back. This is Bill Newman, WHMP. For WHMP News, I'm Jess Tyler. Cannabis company TrueLeave is being fined after the death of one of their employees who worked at their Holyoke facility. According to OSHA, on January 7th, West Springfield resident Lorna McMurray died of occupational asthma due to exposure to ground cannabis. OSHA inspected the Holyoke facility after the death, finding that employees in flower production were exposed to, quote, occupational quantities of whole and ground cannabis and were not provided effective information and training on the hazards involved in the cannabis grinding and production process. OSHA cited the company for three violations and issued a fine of just over $35,000. TrueLeave is contesting the findings. Plans for an office building at the site of the Howard Johnson Motel in Hadley are moving forward. The planning board voted unanimously to approve Hampshire Hospitality Group's plans to construct a new 45,000-square-foot, three-story building on the Route 9 location. The project is still waiting for approval from other city departments as well as permits from Town Hall. A section of I-91 in Franklin County has reopened after being closed for a portion of the commute this morning. I-91 southbound was shut down between Exit 43 in Greenfield and Exit 35 in Waitley before 5.30 a.m. Traffic was diverted off the highway onto Route 5 southbound. The highway was reopened around 6.40. Mass State Police say a tanker truck by the way station in South Deerfield was leaking medical-grade oxygen from a valve, and the truck had a flat tire. The truck was moved to the way station, and the roadway was reopened. No injuries were reported. Becoming mostly sunny today, nice one, a high of 72 to 76 with a light breeze. Variable clouds tonight, another round of patchy fog, an overnight low of 46 to 52. Sun cloud mix, chance for a shower tomorrow, a high in the low 70s, 50s but bright on Saturday. I'm 22 News Storm Team Meteorologist Brian Lapis, 1015 WHMP. This News Minute is brought to you by our partners at Holyoke Media. Yo soy Johan Rashivega con la síntesis informativa de Holyoke Media. Holyoke Gas and Electric celebró el miércoles en el Parque de los Veteranos la Semana de Energía Pública y Gas Natural con un evento comunitario que vio reunidas a diferentes entidades y negocios locales que ofrecieron información al público relacionada con el uso de energía, vehículos eléctricos, el programa de bicicletas compartidas, así como incentivos para ayudar con los costos y optimizar el consumo de energía doméstica con la llegada del otoño e invierno. Kate Sullivan Craven, directora de comunicaciones de Holyoke Gas and Electric, dijo a Holyoke Media que la la Semana de la Energía Pública y la Semana del Gas Natural Público se celebran en todo el país. Con este evento quisimos asegurarnos de que las personas estén al tanto de algunos de los programas únicos que tenemos que pueden ayudarlos durante este invierno o tal vez alentarlos a usar electricidad para su calefacción o electricidad para su coche. Y solo hablando de algunos de los programas únicos que hay aquí en la ciudad que pueden ayudarlos con sus energías en el hogar, señaló Sullivan Craven. Este evento busca principalmente crear conciencia sobre el valor de tener un servicio utilitario el cual le pertenece a la ciudad y a su comunidad. Para conocer más sobre los programas e incentivos disponibles puede visitar la página de Holyoke Gas and Electric. 
En otras informaciones, un juez federal desestimó una demanda presentada por empleados del hogar de veteranos de Holyoke en el centro de un devastador brote de COVID-19 en 2020 que dijeron que se violaron sus derechos constitucionales porque se vieron obligados a trabajar en condiciones inhumanas. El juez federal de distrito, Mark Mastroianni, en Springfield, desestimó la demanda presentada el año pasado contra cuatro miembros del antiguo equipo de liderazgo del Holyoke Soldiers Home, diciendo que los trabajadores no lograron demostrar qué derechos constitucionales fueron violados. El demandante principal era un asistente de enfermería certificado en el hogar y la demanda buscaba el estatus de demanda colectiva. Yo soy Johan Rashi Vega y esta fue la síntesis informativa de Holyoke Media a través de WHMP. This News Minute has been brought to you by our partners at Holyoke Media. This is Bill Newman, WHMP. We continue our conversation with Larry Parnas, who is the managing editor for Innovation and previously had the title regarding his duties at the Berkshire Eagle as the investigative editor and reporter. We are also with Jeffrey Pyle, who is a partner at Prince LaBelle Tie in Boston and is expert on First Amendment freedom of speech, freedom of press issues. We continued our conversation during the break. And Larry Parnas, you made, I think, an important point about what the archdiocese position was with regard to releasing the names of credibly accused members of the clergy, members of the Archdiocese, the Roman Catholic Archdiocese in Springfield, and that policy changed. Tell us when and where and what happened in that regard. Sure. Uh, in the, in the simultaneous with these events in terms of press coverage and these issues, um, there was a change in leadership in the diocese, and uh, Bishop William Byrne came in, and I think he brought a, a, a desire to reckon with uh, these issues and with the church's public image. And one of the changes they made uh, under Byrne was that they dropped a policy of not listing as credibly accused priests against whom uh, uh, an accusation was brought after they died. That had been the case with Weldon. He, he died you know, many years ago, and he died before the the survivor's accusation came forward against him. So under the former policy, he wouldn't have been listed as credibly accused. So there's that. Uh, but in June of 2021, after the lawsuit was filed, but I think possibly unrelated to it, the, the, uh, the diocese changed that policy. And now it does include allegations against priests who died before the allegation came forward. And that policy changed only when? Uh, I think it was May or June of 2021, last year, just last year. Wow. Okay, let's go back for a final word, if we could, from Attorney Jeff Pyle. Tell us about where the lawsuit stands and when it is apt to go to trial and whether or not uh, Larry Parnas is now in the clear. Well, for now, Larry is in the clear. The judge's recent order this week says that in response to the current subpoena, Larry needs only to produce documents and information received from non-confidential sources, people who were willing to speak with Larry on the record. The court does have a caveat in its order saying that the court is open to possibly requiring Mr. Parnas to disclose confidential sources at trial if any, if, if some of, if one or more of the confidential sources is a trial witness, we um, are confident we'll be able to show at that time that there's nothing about the identity of any of Mr. Parnas's sources that has anything to do with the issues in this case. The, the diocese doesn't dispute that the abuse occurred. So to the extent that there's claims for recovery for abuse, uh, the issue is, has to do with legal issues about the diocese's uh, responsibility for it and also uh, the extent of damages. And the diocese doesn't really dispute how it responded to the survivor's accusations from 2014 all the way through 2019. So we don't believe that anything about Larry's notes or Larry's confidential sources or their identities has any bearing on this case. And we look forward to making that case um, if needed at a later time. We expect the case will probably go to trial sometime next year. And the trial is against the archdiocese for sexual abuse perpetrated by whom? Perpetrated by Bishop Weldon and other priests, uh, according to the complaint. And also, uh, it's also seeking recovery for how the, the, the diocese responded 
to the allegations made by the survivor. Jeffrey Pyle, thank you so oh, much for your right, time. Bill. And thank okay. you, Larry Parnas. Thank okay. you so very much. Bill, great being with you. Thank you, Bill. This is Bill Newman, WHM. When it's happening here in the Valley, we're talking about it. Hearing the verdict and hearing the words racial animus were extremely painful for, certainly for myself and for the women and men of the Greenfield Police Department who really do go to work every day to serve the people of Greenfield. 101.5, 1400 and 1240. We are the Valley. We are WHMP. 586-1000. Good phone number, right? It's the number Whalen Insurance got when we opened in 1961. It's still our number more than 60 years later. If you need an insurance quote or have a claim, just call 586-1000. We answer the phone, ready to help. That's our pledge to you. Until now. Now when you call, we'll answer. And if it's something clerical or routine, like an address change, we're going to transfer you to the Arbella Insurance Call Center in Quincy. You'll be connected with a real person there, too. You won't be entering your policy number on the dial pad. The Arbella Call Center. I told myself Whalen Insurance would never do this, but insurance agent friends all over New England tell me it actually works really well. So we're going to try it. And if it doesn't work well, I'm sure you'll let us know by calling 586-1000. Whalen Insurance. Local people, local service, local insurance. In partnership with Arbella Insurance. You want the very best opportunities for your child. Given the amount of time children spend in school each day, you want your child to be inspired, to be engaged, to love going to school. At Bement, each student experiences this every day. The Bement School in Deerfield is a close-knit community of students from around the valley and across the globe. Kindergarten through ninth grade, learning from each other in the classroom, rooting for each other on the athletic field, and celebrating each other on the stage. We are local, we are global, and our differences make us stronger. We interact face-to-face, -face, share meals together every day, and open doors for one another. The true essence of your child's time at Bement is preparing for a life of integrity, of significance, of joy. Financial aid and transportation are available to help make a Bement school education possible. I'm Kim Laughlin, Director of Admission. Please contact me or visit our website. Bement will be the best investment you make in your child's future. Hello, this is Mother Nature speaking. Well, speaking through me. You can just let everything slide until next spring, but I'm not going to be happy. I know you're busy. We're all busy. That's why you call Beyond Landscape. They cut back the perennials, deadhead the flowers, clean up the leaves and compost them. Maybe the lawn needs feeding or the beds need weaning. Oh, you'll get to it? Oh, really? Listen to your mother. Take back your weekend. Call Beyond Landscape. Book a fall cleanup. This is Bill Newman, WHMP. We welcome to the show Owen Ullman, who is the author of a new book, and he is coming, into he is coming to Northampton on Tuesday to give a talk we think you want to hear. Owen Ullman was the managing editor for USA Today for some 20 years. As a reporter, his, in, his experience goes back to being an editor with the a, and reporter for the AP and Businessweek, among other publications. Again, 20 years as editor, managing editor for USA Today. He will be at Forbes Library on Tuesday at 6.30. And we think you want to hear what he has to say. Again, the title of his new book is Empathy Economics, Janet Yellen's Remarkable Rise to Power and Her Drive to Spread Prosperity to All. Well, Owen Ullman, I know you want to talk about uh, Janet Yellen, and I liked my question. My second question is uh, what would she be doing today if she were still head of the Fed because the issues of inflation and its effect on politics is enormous – what is happening with, this, with Saudi Arabia and Russia and oil is of enorm enormous consequence. Um, what the Fed is doing in terms of raising the uh, interest rates is of enormous consequence. And I wonder if you, as 
person who is expert on Janet Yellen, what you think she would be doing if she were head of the Fed, if she could wave a magic wand now, whether she would be doing what the Fed is doing now and what the Biden administration is doing. And I think I would appreciate if you would start us off there. Very good question, Bill. Uh, and thank you so much for having me on your show. So yes, yeah, so I think that is the big challenge of the moment for the US and for the whole world economy. And actually, uh, I think Yellen would currently be doing something very similar to what uh, the Fed under Jerome Powell is doing. He is a close ally and friend of hers. She actually uh, pushed Biden to uh, reappoint him to the Fed. I think what she would have done differently is she would have moved sooner than the Fed did to start raising interest rates. I think she would have uh, had more concerns early on last year uh, and uh, would have raised rates sooner so they wouldn't have to move so sharply. Uh, we may have a recession as a result, uh, but they really need to get inflation under control. And I think that is job number one. Uh, I would add just one other thing since you mentioned energy, which is she has organized a very creative plan to limit how much Russia could charge for oil by creating a buyer's cartel among the major economies in the world where they basically will not pay more than a minimum amount for Russian oil. And if that goes forward, that would be a huge gain for uh, the Western countries and, and set back Russia and its war in Ukraine. Tell me this. Uh, because that was a very gentle critique of Jerome Powell and the Fed. Uh, what struck me, and struck me because I don't uh, have the background or expertise to be able to yell at the New York Times when I'm reading an op-ed piece that I disagree with on economics, but Paul uh, Krugman wrote a piece about the Fed saying, this goes back some time now, oh, let it be, inflation's not really a big problem. He's apologized for that column since then. You say that the Fed today may have been a little late. In fact, we have inflation now baked into the pie of the American economy. So was the Fed late in raising interest rates, which would slow the economy, which would uh, and will eventually, perhaps putting us through a recession, uh, make inflation less of a, an economic terror? Your thoughts on that? Yes, the Fed was late to uh, go after inflation, uh, but that's because economics has a lousy crystal ball, though they can never, never really tell what's going to happen in the future because events change. The Fed is, I mean, economists are really good at explaining what happened in the past, but not predicting the future. I would disagree with you a little bit about inflation baked in the cake. This is not quite like the 70s where we had a decade of rising inflation. Uh, this time it was caused largely by the pandemic and it shot up over one year. And there's a good chance that with uh, higher interest rates and the government stopping to provide all the stimulus money that we'll see it come down soon. The wild card is energy because of the war in Ukraine. But we're not seeing, you know, wages continuing to go up. In fact, the latest indication is wage increases have slowed and a lot of other prices for uh, some travel and some other factors like used cars, even new cars are coming down. I blame supply bottlenecks more than this idea that inflation is just running rampant. We are speaking with Owen Ullman. He is a veteran Washington reporter and editor, 20 years as managing editor of USA Today. He will be at Forbes Library at 6.30 for a book signing and talk and discussion with the members of this community. His new book is titled Empathy Economics, Janet Yellen's Remarkable Rise to Power and Her Drive to Spread Prosperity to All. Your comment about uh, ec economists being really good at explaining what happened and not very good about predicting what will happen, uh, brings to mind uh, Harry Truman's famous uh, statement about economists. He said, what I want is a one-handed economist to advise me. He right. said, because I am so tired of all the advisors I have, the economic advisors say, on one hand, there's this, and on right. the other hand, there's that. And I'm wondering, 
since the Fed is in the business, actually, of predicting what will happen and trying to manage the future, how does the Fed work? And how did uh, Janet Yellen in particular, since she's the subject of your book, how did she manage those expectations and that responsibility, which is the Federal Reserve, which was Federal Reserve Board, which we refer to as the Fed, how did she do it? What did she do? Was she effective? Right. Well, first, let me add that Lyndon Johnson said at one point, he said, you know, if you laid every economist end to end, they still wouldn't reach a conclusion. <laughs> so, <laughs> That's so, good. You know, Harry Truman wasn't the only one who, who uh, attacked him. Um, so Yellen, very interestingly, had a very successful four years as Fed chair. You know, she, she was a very good uh, actually forecaster, and she got very high marks from of all uh, organizations, the Wall Street Journal that rated her economic forecast when she was at the Fed as better than anyone else. Of course, you know, some of them had horrible forecasts. Problem is economic events change, and so their forecasts are really just kind of a guesstimate of where, where they have to go. I think Yellen was very good at kind of always playing against the risk of something happening. So she had qualms about inflation early last year. She worried that the big stimulus that Biden got passed last spring might be inflationary. I think if she were at the Fed, she would have started to uh, raise rates sooner to guard against, you know, inflation shooting up. You know, that's her MO rather than plunging ahead rashly believing everything that happens in the future. And I might add, by the way, you know, with this latest push by Biden for debt forgiveness for all these student loans, she was cut out of those discussions. And the reason is because she worried that that might be inflationary, you know, providing all this extra money to people at a time when you really didn't need it. And the White House wanted the political victory of doing this, so they wouldn't even let her talk to Biden about it. So let me ask you this, because it's a piece of economic analysis, particularly with the Biden administration, because I want the Biden administration to succeed. It bothers me. So I appreciate your perspective. On one hand, oh, God, here we go. The economists say, if you give more money to people <laughs> who need to spend it, it will be inflationary because they'll spend the money and you'll have... Uh, more dollars chasing uh, a static or uh, lesser amount of goods, and that's inflationary. Um, on the other hand, uh, when the United States government gives tax breaks of billions of dollars to billionaires and mil multimillionaires and corporations, that, that's somehow not inflationary. Can you explain that to me, please? Well, a lot depends on what these billionaires and companies do with the money. If they invest it to expand supply so that, you know, prices go down, that that's good for the economy. But you know what so many companies and, and rich people do with that, those tax breaks? They, they plow it into buying their own stock. They're not using it for productive investment. And so all that happens is the stock market becomes more and more of a bubble and people have the wealth effect. They feel their portfolios are growing. And so they spend more, even though supply hasn't increased and that can be inflationary. Let me turn, if I might, to the title of your book, Empathy sure. Economics, Janet Yellen's Remarkable Rise to Power and Her Drive to Spread pos Prosperity to All. Empathy Economics? The, yes. This this uh, economics, the place where people go to sleep in class. Um, <laughs> I'm just I'm just kidding you. But but seriously, uh, empathy economics. That's a new take. Janet Yellen's take. Explain that, if you would, please. Sure. So she she grew up in Brooklyn. Her father was a family doctor treating patients uh, after the Depression and right after World War Two. Many of them were still poor, out of work, scarred from, you know, tough times. And he cared for them without worrying whether they could pay, afford to pay or not. And that left her with this sense that I'm going to use economics to make uh, life better for the disadvantaged. And everything she's done 
has been, you know, thinking about that, you know, how to help people who are out of work to improve employment, how to help minorities. Uh, she even went to the first Treasury Secretary ever to go to an Indian reservation to talk about the plight of Native Americans. So everything she's done has been in her heart saying, I need to help everyone so that the American economy works for all, you know, consumers, not just for the wealthiest. Was she a successful chair of the Fed? Yes, as I mentioned earlier, she was very successful, actually. Um, she dur During her tenure, uh, the economy kept growing, unemployment kept going down, and inflation was in check. And the only reason she didn't get reappointed by Trump, which, by the way, broke the precedent of presidents of both parties keeping Fed chairs to be keep it sort of nonpartisan, is he worried about having a, a Democratic appointee around during his re-election campaign. And he also went around telling friends he thought she was too short to be Fed chair. You know, she barely is five feet in heels. And he said she didn't look the part of a Fed chair. Oh, well, that's a, that's a great criterion for deciding who should be uh, in responsible and important government <laughs> officials. So right. I'd like to ask you this. We just have about a minute left. Uh, empathy economics, is that in our rear view mirror, or is that something that you see as a possibility going forward? I hope it's a possibility going forward, Bill. You know, one of the biggest problems in this country has been growing inequality between the haves and the have-nots. And I think that's a contributor to the fact that we have such political polarization and social chaos. And I think if we can find a way to make this economy work better for everyone so that when it grows, everyone gets a piece of the pie rather than just those at the top, I think the country will be much better off. And I know she's dedicated to doing that. That doesn't mean, you know, we'll succeed. There are a lot of other factors. But I hope for the sake of the future of this country that empathy becomes kind of a lodestar for economic policymaking. And she, she's one who believes that. And really, just very quickly, that's for you to say, you think that having compassion as a part of economics, that having the uh, interests of working people actually can work in the United States and for the Federal Reserve? Absolutely. You know, a uh, secure and happy workforce, they're more productive, there's less turnover, better quality. It's good for everyone. We have been speaking with Owen Ullman, who will be at Forbes Library Tuesday at 6.30. I'm sure it's going to be a fascinating talk. His new book, Empathy Economic, Economics, Janet Yellen's Remarkable Rise to Power and Her Drive to Spread Prosperity for All. Thank you, Owen Ullman, for the book. Thank you for your time. Look forward to seeing you on Tuesday. All right. Thank you, Bill, for the tough questions. Want to support the kind of local talk you hear on The Bill Newman Show? Want to hear your business's message here on WHMP? Email us, yourmessage at whmp.com. We'll help you craft a marketing message that'll reach listeners of your favorite WHMP show. And we'll be supporting the local news, valley talk, and progressive voices you hear right here on WHMP. Let us know about your message. Email us, yourmessage at whmp.com, and add your message to our mission. And hear your message right here on WHMP, Your message at whmp.com. Do you act a certain way around your partner because you're afraid of what they'll think or say? Are you afraid of what they'll do? If you're in a relationship, it's your right to be healthy and safe. If you're experiencing abuse, emotional, verbal, or physical, you have options, and Safe Passage is here to help. It's all free and completely confidential. We are here for you. Call our hotline at 413 586 5066 or visit Northampton in the Valley since 1950. WHMP Northampton, WHMQ Greenfield, Northampton Radio Group Station.